0: If you would, take your Bibles and let's turn together to Psalm 104. This is the next to the last sermon in Book 4 of of the Psalter. Wallace will preach Psalm 103 uh, next week, and then we'll enter into the the last quarter of the year and the the final book of the Psalter, Book 5, that starts with Psalm 107. Uh, Psalm 104 is kind of a part of a, a trio of Psalms, 104, 105, and 106 here right at the end of book four, and they're all historical Psalms. Uh, Psalm 104 looks back to Genesis 1, to creation, God's creating the world. Psalm 105 looks at the many instances of God's faithful redemption of his people. Psalm 106, as well as preached last week, does the same thing but highlights their failures along the way in God's continued and unyielding mercy and grace to his people uh, and the promise of the covenant with David that he would bring a redeemer. And so in Psalm 104, we look all the way back to creation and think about uh, the glory of God in that and the hope that that gives us that he will indeed one day redeem us fully and finally. If you're able, let's stand together as we read from God's word from Psalm 104. Pay careful attention. This is the Word of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chamber in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations, so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with the garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys, they flow between the mountains, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst, beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth." And wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nest, and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim. He made the moon for the seasons, the sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness And it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both great and And small. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Would you uh, please be seated, and we'll pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word Lead us by your Spirit and help us, we pray, to see Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, Last Saturday, as you all will know, our, our nation soberly marked the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks on September 11th. Uh, That date, of course, is for my generation, much like uh, JFK's assassination on November 22, 1963, for my parents' generation. Uh, We all remember where we were. We remember what we were doing when we heard the news. I was very interested to watch the memorial services that were going on last Saturday and and caught the service in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where uh, United Flight 93 crashed in a field Uh, There, on its way, they believe to the Capitol. I was struck by uh, former President George Bush's remarks at that memorial service. Uh, He recounted how, in the midst of this incredible national tragedy and and destruction, that the the very best of American ideals were on display, from the heroism of those who were on that flight who who decided at the expense of their own lives to to prevent the plane from heading to the capital, and and so it crashed in the field, and there were no survivors. From that heroism to uh, what he described as the unity of Americans of all stripes reaching out to to help one another in those days after 9-11. And as he surveyed these bright lights in the midst of dark days, he kept repeating this refrain in his speech, saying, "'This is the America I know.'" By highlighting these ideals of our nation from that day that he was witness to, uh, President Bush was, in a very real sense, calling upon the nation to bridge that gap once again, that gap that exists inevitably between what we ought to be and, and the situation as it actually is. It was a way, I believe, in his speech of instilling uh, in the nation, or at least in those who were listening, a desire for the higher ideals of what it means to be a citizen of the United States. In a much more important and authoritative and spiritually significant way, Psalm 104 is doing something very similar to that. It's a poem of praise, calling us to praise God who made and sustains all things that he has created, And in the psalm, we are are beckoned, we are welcomed, we are invited to look at the world around us, but also to look at the world as God intended it, as he describes it in Genesis 1, and then to direct our hearts and eyes upward to the God who made the world. And as we do that, we are invited to think about God's intention, his design in creation, Before sin, what was the world intended to be like apart from sin, where the living God dwells with his creation in joyful harmony? We are to remember where all of creation is is heading, to the removal of sin, to the restoration of God's perfect order, and to the full restoration of our relationship with him in loving communion through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we do that, as we, as we look at the world as it was intended to be, without sin, and as we look ahead to the world as it will be when Christ returns and all sin will be removed, we're to long for that to happen in our lives now and in the world of the God has made, the whole of God's creation. Or to put it another way, glorifying the God of creation should lead us to groan for the fulfillment of His redemption. Glorifying the God of creation should lead us to groan for the fulfillment of His redemption. Considering God's creation, first of all, should lead us to worship Him. Uh, You notice the psalm tells us what it's about at the beginning and at the end. The psalmist calls upon Himself and then upon the rest of us to bless the Lord because He is very great. It's kind of like Uh, bookends on the psalm. He begins saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and then ends with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and the first instance of the word hallelujah in the Bible, praise the Lord. And he urges us to meditate on God's creation as a means of seeing the glory of God and rejoicing in it. We live in a world where we are constantly tempted to keep our eyes fixed anywhere else other than the Lord. Uh, You've got got your device. You you can fix your eyes on this all day long, can't you? Just swipe, 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 scroll through it, and then before you know two, three hours have gone, and you, you have been consumed with this thing in front of you. We're consumed with the news. We're consumed with what we read and what we see on the TV. We're consumed, are we not, with our own lives and the very real burdens that we bear in this life. We are constantly tempted to keep our eyes fixed here beneath the sun and not to raise our eyes heavenward to see the Lord. The psalm tells us that this world was intended to direct our eyes past it to the one who has created it and us in all things. Now, this may be an obvious point to make, but it's easily overlooked or assumed as we read the psalm namely that God reveals himself through his creation. That's his design. He's made it. He has placed his fingerprints all over it with the intention that we would see what he has made and through that, see him. See that in these opening verses as the psalmist describes creation in very poetic and vivid language as the Lord's clothing and the Lord's celestial palace. Notice the beginning of Verse 2. Verse 1 You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fires his servant. The Lord has intended for us to see who he is through his creation. He clothes himself. In light as with a garment. The invisible God makes himself visible to us through his creation. It's kind of the opposite, uh, if you'll bear with me, it's kind of the opposite of that old moral tale of the emperor's new clothes. In that story, you know, the emperor, a visible emperor, clothes himself with invisible clothes, revealing his vanity and his foolishness, and everybody sees it except him. But here, the invisible God clothes himself with visible creation, revealing his splendor and majesty. And the goal of all of that is for us to glorify and exalt the creator. It'd be like if you went to a store that sells handmade pottery, and you find a beautiful piece of artwork in the form of a, a vase, maybe for holding flowers, made, it, made out of clay. And you look at it, it's beautifully glazed, it's well-made with great craftsmanship, uh, decorated it in an appropriate way, and, and you're in all of this work of art, this creation. And, and we shouldn't stop there, though, because normally you take that and what do you do with it? You pick it up, you look it over, you examine it, and then inevitably you turn it over. And you see on the bottom, the artist has stamped their name there. And you understand this beautiful work of art which you love ought to lead you to the admiring of the one who made it. All of creation is meant to do that for us. It's as though we're to take it and turn it over and see the Lord's name stamped upon all of his creation and to give him glory and worship. The psalmist in particular emphasizes four things He emphasizes a lot of things. We're just going to talk about four things that the psalmist emphasizes in praise of God, our maker. First of all, notice he is personal. He is a personal creator. Everything about this psalm screams to us that the maker of all things is not an impersonal force, but a personal, relational being. I don't know if you kind of catch that in the the playful interaction between the Lord and his creation. It's delightful, it's intentional, it's, it's intimate. He speaks and the waters flee. They run up to the mountains and they go down into the valleys. He causes those same waters to flow into streams, delightfully providing for all of his creatures who come there to quench their thirst. He provides the sun and the moon day and night, bringing order to his creation. He is personally involved, delighting even, being satisfied with the fruit of his work in creation. I think this is a good reminder to us uh, to be on guard in terms of how we view the world in which we live, to be on guard from adopting what you might call a scientistic worldview. I don't mean scientific and, and I don't mean uh, you know, that we should be boo-boo on science or anything like that, but we should guard ourselves from viewing the world in a way that reduces everything to purely mechanical, purely physical explanations. Science is amazing. Uh, The things that have been discovered and the advances that have been made, all of it is astounding to us. And as, as Christians, Christians historically have been Uh, very favorable towards scientific endeavor and research and advancement. And there's a reason for that. Scientific observation and and advancement only really makes sense in a Christian worldview where there's a personal creator who governs the world in an orderly manner. Things are not left to random chance and accident where you don't know if things are going to be repeatable or observable again. The God who made all things is personal. He's intentional. And we should remember that all the ways in which the world works are the fruit of his design, his personal intention, and not simply random acts of chance reduced to a view that never looks beyond the sun. He is personal. He is also powerful and majestic. Uh, You see this in particular in a couple of ways. Notice his command over the waters in verse 6. You covered the earth with the deep as with the garment. The deep is just a metaphor for water. These waters, the waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. The sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Verse 8 should really be talking about the waters going up to the mountains and down into the valleys. He is powerful and majestic in his authority over all of creation. Notice as well, um, verse 26, talking about the sea and Leviathan being made to sport in the ocean. Uh, Leviathan is, is a word, it probably just means like a, a whale, or at the very least, a, a really big fish in the water. If you can imagine being an, an Israelite, you didn't really know what, what was really going on in the ocean. We, we kind of have great ideas about that because you can send cameras beneath the surface of the ocean and, and see all these things that people have not been able to see for ages before now. Uh, but if you're an Israelite, The ocean is kind of a little bit scary. Uh, It's it's a source of of fear. They weren't really a seafaring people in that regard. And you can imagine standing on a shore looking at the ocean and and maybe seeing a whale kind of crest up above the water and then go back down. And all you're thinking is, I wonder what's beneath the water because all I see is this massive gray thing coming up above the water. And that unknown part of what they could see often in surrounding cultures kind of got turned into mythic beast, And so in the pagan cultures around Israel, like the Canaanite cultures, that beast, Leviathan, was a symbol of chaos, a symbol of, of evil. of it was kind of a sinister beast, and they were fearful of it. But the God who made all things... And the God who, who chose Israel as his people and has made his church, his bride, that same God makes this massive sea creature for the ocean to just playfully jump around in it like it's nothing. It's nothing sinister. It's nothing evil. Leviathan sports in the ocean because that's what God made it to do. He commands it because he is powerful and majestic. The winds even are at his commands. I don't know if you do this when you read stuff like that, if your brain kind of does a little hyperlink to some other places in the Bible. uh, As you read through the Old Testament, there's all kinds of arrows that point us ahead to the New Testament and to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered um, in the story about Jesus being on the boat with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee? He's sleeping in the front of the boat, and this storm comes, he's, he's tired, it's been a long day of, of teaching and, and performing miracles and providing for people, and he's worn out. He gets in the boat with his disciples, he takes a nap in the front of the boat, and all of a sudden, this massive storm comes on the Sea of Galilee, and it's beating against the boat, the wind and the waves are rocking it back and forth, and the disciples are fearful because of this mega storm that has hit them. And they look at Jesus, and he's sleeping, and they wake him up, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? And what does it say that Jesus did when he woke up in the front of the boat? What did he do to the wind and the waves? He rebuked them. I have always wondered what a strange word to use when speaking about Jesus speaking to the wind and the waves and telling them to stop. And yet Psalm 104 tells us that the powerful and majestic God who created all things rebukes the waters. And they fly up to the mountains and fly down to the valleys because he is the sovereign one. Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves because he is the God depicted in Psalm 104. He is the Lord. The gospel writers knew that and deliberately depicted Jesus in that way. Jesus has power and majesty because he is the Son of God. The Lord is also depicted here as the great provider. He's personal. He's powerful and majestic. He's the great provider. Uh, Notice just particularly three things. The waters flow, providing for all of his creatures. He provides habitat for these mountain creatures, the mountain goats and the the shefanim, which are little kind of bobcat-type things that live in in the holes up in the rocks in the mountains. He provides for them. He appoints the sun and the moon to bring order and creation and calls the animals out at night so that they can prowl around looking for their prey, and then they go back to sleep during the day so the man can go out to work and to produce fruit from his labor. He is the one who brings order to provide for his people. Vegetation, trees for birds, so the man can have all that he needs. Even wine for celebration and oil to glisten his face in times of gladness, he is the great provider. And then finally, in verse 24, we see he is wise. Verse 24 kind of hits pause. It's just going on about the Lord providing in his power and his majesty and his relational uh, interaction with what he has made. And then 24, he just pauses and says, "'Oh, Lord, how many are your works? "'In wisdom you have made them all. "'The earth is full of your possessions.'" It stops us in the midst of this description to point us to the wisdom of God in all that he has made. The Lord reveals himself in his creation, that he is personal, powerful, and majestic, a great provider, and infinitely wise in all that he has done. These things ought to give us comfort and motivation to praise. What a comfort it is to know that the God who rules the world is personally involved in it. He's not sitting off to the side, twiddling his thumbs, wondering what's going on, what will he do? There is no sweat upon his brow. As he sees the world and all of its brokenness, He sovereignly, powerfully, personally, lovingly, and in all wisdom, rules and overrules in all of his creation. And we should find comfort in this. We'll sing after at the end of the service, rather, this is my father's world," which has a wonderful line in it that says, "This is my father's world." Let me read it so I don't mess it up. This is my father's world oh, let me never forget, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's done, the, my father's world, rather, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. We should find great comfort in the fact that the God who made all things, sustains all things, is our personal creator and redeemer through Jesus, our Savior. And this ought to move us to praise him, even as the psalmist does in this psalm. Considering God's creation should move us to praise him, to find comfort in his character, But it also leaves us without excuse and in need of a redeemer. It's true that only the eyes of faith will be able to see the world for what it is, the creation of a personal, wise, holy, and loving God. Apart from faith, you'll you'll come up with any other explanation than that, to explain the world, how we're here, why there's something and not nothing, how things work consistently and predictably, You can't really explain that without God. And yet, apart from faith, we come up with all all manner of explanation. And yet, the Scriptures have told us that God has testified, He has borne witness to His character in His creation, that it's plain for all to see so that we are without excuse if we reject that. And yet, at the same time, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We need a Redeemer to enable us to see it. The psalm gets at this in the very last verse, in verse 35. Uh, and this verse kind of clues us in to what this psalm is aiming to do. I don't know if you feel like this when, or felt like this when we were reading the psalm. Most of this psalm kind of feels to me like uh, getting in an inner tube and, and floating down kind of a lazy river type situation Make sure you have sunscreen on. That can be bad if you're on a lazy river for several hours, just floating on the inner tube. But it kind of feels like you're reading Psalm 103, uh, where are we? Psalm 104, you're on the inner tube, you're floating down the lazy river, it's just relaxing, it's joyful, the sun is glistening on the water around you, it's cool, it's refreshing. And all of a sudden you hit a rapid, you go down the rapid, the tube flies out from under you and you're just scrambling because it was totally unexpected. Verse 35 kind of feels like that when I read through Psalm 104. Bless the Lord. He's the great creator. He's done all these things. He's powerful. He's majestic. Let his glory endure forever. I want to sing to the Lord as long as I live. I hope my meditation and my life is pleasing to you. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Just kind of, is jarring. It's surprising. It's unexpected. But then that's the point. All this time, the psalmist has been meditating on creation without sin. You notice there's no, like, disruption in the psalmist's description of creation. He didn't just take a walk in the woods and look around. He took a walk in the Word and looked at God's creation in Genesis 1, his joyful, harmonious interaction with creation. I don't know if you caught that. There's, there's no struggle in his description of creation. It's almost an idealized version of creation, echoing Genesis 1 all over the place. And as he looks at that, he's reminded that this creation, this created world, was made for one ultimate and primary purpose, to glorify the God who made it. And that we were made for that purpose as well, to know the God who made you, to love him with your whole life. And so he looks at this and and that's why he prays in verse 33, let me sing to the Lord as long as I live. Let me sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Why? Because that's what he was made to do. That's what all of creation was made to do. But there's this big black mark on creation in the form of sin. He looks at what it's supposed to be, he realizes what it is, and he longs for the day when sin will be no more, which is why he says, let sinners be consumed from the earth, let the wicked be no more. How do we hold together this tension of what the world ought to be, what it will be, and and what it actually is now? Now? it ought to create in us a groaning, as as Paul talks about, all of creation, groaning for the revelation of Jesus Christ when he will return and fully redeem all of his creation and put an end to sin and all of its consequences. Jesus is the one who resolves this tension for us, who through his life and death and resurrection has bought us forgiveness of sin and brought us into loving communion with the God who made us so that we are called children of the living God, sons and daughters of God through faith. And in his first coming, Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom so that what will be has already begun, but it is not yet here in its fullness. I remember when my grandmother was still living. She died in 2009. We called her Gigi. She was great. She, uh, Before she died, she made a list of all of her possessions, and she gave it to my dad and his brother and said, y'all figure this out. Figure out who wants what. I don't want to mess with it. And so they did. It was happy. Nobody got mad, which was amazing. And they had this list, maybe 10 or so pages, handwritten pages of all the things that she had that she knew her family would want And my dad and his older brother and and a a niece uh, from his younger brother went through this list and then started marking off the items and doing all the negotiations that go along with this. You want that? How about we trade? All that kind of stuff. So that before my grandmother died, we all knew what her inheritance would be and who would get it. But we lived in the in-between, if you will. Now, we weren't longing for her to die so that we could get all the stuff. You understand the illustration only goes so far. My point is... Jesus has come, and he has redeemed us, he has forgiven us, he has brought us into communion with God, and he has said, you have forgiveness of sins now, and you have a hope of what's to come, and what's to come is a world in which there is no sin, where you will live with God forever, you will see his face, you won't be fearful, his hand shall wipe away all tears. And give you eternal comfort, and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more mourning, no more disease, no more pain. The old things have passed away. He has made all things new, and no sin will be allowed there. We'll behold the glory of God forever, and we live in the in-between, Christ's first and second coming, seeing his work begun and longing for it to be completed That ought to do two things in us as we close. One, it ought to make us look at our lives with great humility. Jesus is not done with you yet, but he is working in you to put sin to death so that you would live more and more unto righteousness and the freedom of God's law. It ought to make us look at ourselves with humility and repentance. Lord, may my life, my meditation, be pleasing to you. It ought to make us humbly desire that our lives would be an offering of praise to the great God who has made all things. It should also make us yearn for the final eradication of sin, not only from our lives, but from the entire world. It's easy to look around at the world and to look down on it, to look at all the problems in the world and think, well, if everybody just thought like I do, People just did the things that I do and made the choices that I make. Things would be okay. Or we might think if everybody did what we do as a collective, then the world would be a whole lot better. And maybe there's some measure of truth in that we should acknowledge. Uh, but we should never be so arrogant as to assume that we came to those conclusions on our own or that what the world just needs is just us to tell it what to do. We live in a world yearning, groaning, under the weight of sin and its curse. A world in deep need of a Savior who alone is able to redeem not only us as individuals, but one day when he comes to make the whole of creation renewed. Consideration of sin in our hearts and in the world as we look at what ought to be ought to lead us to grief and a longing for the renewal of all things, and ought to drive us to Jesus, the one who alone is able to do this. The only other time in the New Testament, Psalm 104, rather, ends with this phrase, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And this psalm is the first time where that word is used in the entire Bible. Uh, It means praise Yahweh, his covenant name. Uh, As Wallace has indicated, the only time that that word is used in the New Testament is in Romans uh, Revelation 19, When the Lord brings judgment and puts an end to sin, and returns and restores all things to their rightful order, then all of creation cries out, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This psalm is pointing us, pushing us to look for that great day when Christ shall return and make all things new. And so as we look at the world around us, remember what he intended it to be, and how he displays his glory and his character, his wisdom, his power, his personal relationship with creation. We ought to be moved to praise, and glorifying God. We also ought to be moved to groaning over sin in our own lives. That we are not what we ought to be. Not yet. The world is not what it ought to be. Not yet. But Christ is on the move and will one day restore all things. And may he use you and me in carrying out that great plan that all of the world would see the glory of God in his creation and say with us, hallelujah. Would you pray with me?